Let's pray. Lord, as we follow along in this text with this ancient, important journey, I pray you'd help us not to miss anything. And I pray, Lord, that your truth would shine brightly in our hearts, that we'd see your glory, and that you'd shape us to be like you and to bring you glory as a result of that. I'm asking, Father, for a supernatural empowerment for me as I preach and for each of these people as they listen, that all of this would be done by faith in your ability to call forth something from nothing. And would you even be pleased to do that here today, Lord, I pray. For Jesus' sake, I ask, amen. Please, please have a seat. A good story is almost always full of good surprises. After all, can you imagine reading a story where in the first paragraph they told you everything that was going to happen? It's not not that great. And good stories are full of good surprises. And the best surprises, in my experience, tend to be when the most unlikely characters end up being the really important people that do the most important stuff. So one of my favorite stories is Lord of the Rings. And what makes the Lord of the Rings so good is that it's not a powerful warrior or a great elven king who saves the day, but it's a little tiny hobbit. That's what makes the story. And in fact, in the context of the story, it couldn't be anybody else. It couldn't be someone powerful. It had to be someone insignificant and small and powerless who does what needed to be done. And in the real world, it seems like God loves a good surprise as well because his story, history, and particularly the story of redemption is full of upsets and unexpected turns and big things happening with the most unlikely people. And that's nowhere as clear as in the call of Abram. After the covenant with Noah, this is the next big event in the unfolding plan of redemption. And who we see God choosing for this work is perhaps the last person that any of us would have picked. And that's actually the whole point. That's actually the whole point. But before we get there, we want to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 11. And we want to trace the line very briefly from Noah to Abram. So you can see on your outline, our first point, first big, big chunk here is, is the generations of Shem. Verse 10 of chapter 11, which we didn't read together, and you're welcome for not reading this genealogy together, uh, pronouncing names like Arpakshad and so on. Um, but in chapter 11, we see this, these are the generations of Shem, and they show us 10 generations from Shem, the son of Noah, to Terah, the father of Abram. That's important because in the last genealogy, we saw 10 generations from Adam to the father of Noah. And that list also ended with, with someone who had three sons. Noah had, I think the, gen, sorry, the genealogy went all the way to Noah and it ended with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so here we see 
uh, another genealogy of 10 that ends with three sons. Now, these genealogies, these lists of who came from whom, came from whom, they're really important because they show that these stories are grounded in real history. Okay, this is not a long time ago in a land far, far away. No, this is, this is real stuff. These are real people having real kids. It's also important because these genealogies are keeping alive the promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise that an offspring of the woman was going to come crush the head of the serpent. And these, these genealogies trace that line of descent from Eve all the way on down. And so every, every name here on the list is a potential Messiah. And at least we can say every name here on, the, on these lists is one generation closer to the Messiah. Now, this particular genealogy is also important, the genealogy of Shem, uh, because if you look at the lifespans, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. So Shem lives for 500 years. His son lives 438 years. His son lives even shorter, and it keeps on going down from there to Nahor, who lived 148 years. Now, we're not exactly sure what's going on here after the flood with these lifespans getting shorter, but humanity was not living this long. And it's interesting to note that today, our lifespans have actually gotten quite a bit longer in the past hundred years because of modern medicine. We have, you know, we, uh, we have blood pressure medication and things like that that can keep us alive a lot longer. But despite that, and I was just talking with someone about this this week, the, the human genome, like our DNA, our genetics, is actually corroding and, and melting down at a pretty surprising rate. And you don't hear about that because it really is the opposite of evolution, but it's, it's happening. It's, a, it's, it's observable, is that, is that the, hum, our, the DNA of humanity as a whole is degrading. And, and I wonder if that process had started all the way back here, and that's maybe some of what we see, the, all the, the processes that cause aging were having more and more of an effect on people. We're not sure, but what we can see is there's, there's this transition from these years before the flood when people would live for centuries to people's lifespans getting closer, closer to normal ranges. And in case you think even 140 years is fantastical, well, my grandma just turned 102, so... Uh, no, she just turned 103. See, I'm losing track, so there. Um, next, we get to our next biggest step, the generations of Terah, beginning in verse 27. This is our next big chunk in the book of, of Genesis, and this is a big one, right? Remember how these are the generations of is kind of like a chapter heading in the book of Genesis, is what, is what starts a new section of the book. And so that one that we just looked at wasn't very long. This next one takes us all the way up to chapter 25. These are the generations of Terah. Now, isn't it interesting? If you were naming this part of the book, you would have probably called it the generations of Abram, who's later called Abraham, because we think he's the main character in this section. In many ways, he is, but it's, it's important to see that these are the generations of Terah. And, and as we think about it, Terah's family, not just Abram, features pretty heavily here. You think about Lot, Rebekah, who is Isaac's wife, Laban, who is her brother, Leah and Rachel, who are Jacob's two wives. They're all from, from the family of Terah. So it's, Terah's family features pretty heavily here. And there's two things that we want to see here about Terah. Uh, the first is his troubled family in Ur. And by troubled there, I don't mean necessarily that they had like relationship problems. I just mean they had troubles. Hard things happened to them. 
Verse 28 says Haran, so that was his son. And by the way, in Hebrew, it's totally different than the, than the Haran, that they, the city that they go to. So it's not, not the same thing. In English, it's the same, but not in Hebrew. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, verse 28 says of chapter 11. Some of you here in this room know what it's like to have a child die. And that's, that's not what we would expect would be the normal pattern. It's, it's normal if people are living to a good old age that children would bury their parents, but not the other way around. Now, we're not sure why Haran died here, but it's significant enough that it gets mentioned. It was probably a really big deal for this family. Just Bible study tip, if it's written down, it's because it's important. You think of all the things that aren't written down that we wish we knew about. So if it's written down, it's important. This was a big deal to them. This, this would have been really hard. Now, we also should note that this, was, this happened where? Where were they from? Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, where is that? If you look it up on a Bible map, you have, some of you have those in the back part of your Bible, this is the land of Babylon. Now, it wasn't called Babylon yet, but this is the place where the Tower of Babel was built and what later on became the land of Babylon. And so that's pretty significant that God calls forth Abram from the wreckage of Babel, Babel, that God calls for, that Israel came from this land that later became their, their great enemy. That, that shows God's power and God's ability. Now it's interesting, verse 29, we read about Terah's other two sons taking wives. Abram marries Sarai. We later find out she's his half-sister. She's also Terah's daughter, but came, came from another mom. And then verse 29 shows us that Nahor marries who? His niece. So, uh, so Haran died, and he left behind some kids, one of whom was Lot, one of whom was a daughter, Milcah, and that's who her uncle marries. Now, that seems bizarre to us, but they probably saw this as a way for him to take care of her after her father died, much like Abram sort of t- takes care of Lot. Now, now here's, here's another little thing that's important here. Later on, the law of Israel prohibited this. It says you can't marry your niece. And uh, sorry, I'm getting mixed up here. It actually didn't specifically say that. It did prohibit marrying your half-sister. So Abraham marrying Sarai wasn't supposed to do that. Similarly, Jacob married two sisters at the same time. The law of Israel also said you can't do that. So why is that important? Well, again, it shows us that these aren't myths. If the people of Israel were just writing these myths, which some people think that, don't, it makes much more sense that they would have described Abram and the patriarchs as these squeaky clean Jews who followed the law long before the law was ever around. But the fact that they record them with all these faults, like that Abram married his, that Abram was a lawbreaker, that Jacob was a lawbreaker, it shows that that they're just they're just writing what actually happened. This this is actually what actually happened. So, very important here. And even the fact, they don't whitewash the fact that they came from Ur of the Chaldeans. That's important. Now, there's one more piece of trouble here in verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is a big deal in the ancient world. It's a big deal in in the present day world. But arguably, even a bigger deal in the ancient world. And it's going to become a really big deal in Abram's life. It's going to become a major plot point in the coming chapters. Abram's name, the name Abram, means something like exalted father. 
Can you imagine? Like, so again, like that's what, it, when you say Abram, you're saying exalted father. That was like his name. Can you imagine every time you get called by your name and you have no kids? That stings, doesn't it? Like that, that, that hurts. And this would have been a big struggle for Abram. This would have been a big struggle for this family, which, which we, we, we were getting the picture here. This family is pretty close-knit. They're pretty tight. And this would have been a real trouble for them. So these are some of uh, Terah's troubles, the troubles of his family. Next, number two here, we see his stunted journey to Canaan. Verse 31. This is where we started reading this morning. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, so different, different word, they settled there. Terah, Abram's dad, was actually the one who started the journey to the promised land. And this brings with it a lot of questions. This is one of those spots where we haven't been told everything that we would like to be told. So in Acts chapter 7, 2 to 4, Stephen gives a speech. And he says there that God called Abram to go to Canaan when Abram lived in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. That's how, that's how first century Jews understood this. So how did this happen? Did God call Abram and his dad said, well, I'm going with you? Okay, families tended to be pretty sticky back then in terms of sticking together. Work, they worked like a clan. So did God call Abram and his dad says, you're not going, we're going together? That, that, that could have happened. Did God call the family together? Did Abram get a call and Terah get a call? We, we don't actually know. We don't know, but what we do know, and this is the sad part, is that they didn't make it. They made it about halfway. So the, the ancient world, the, you wouldn't have crossed the desert. And so if, if you were to look on a map from, from Ur of the Chaldeans to the Promised Land, it's kind of like a big, tilty, upside-down U. And Haran is pretty much at the point of the U. It's about halfway. That's as far as they made, made it. And then they settled there. We find out later Nahor, the other son of Terah, came and settled in that same area as well. And this isn't great. It's not great because not only did they not make it, but Haran wasn't a great place. Haran was a pagan environment. Ur of the Chaldeans was a pagan environment. They worshipped idols and everything. Haran was a major center, we know from archaeology, major center of moon worship. So a very pagan place. And it's interesting, some of you might remember this verse from, from our, our uh, journey through Joshua last year, Joshua 24.2. Listen to this. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram came from a bad family came from a pagan family. This is, this is interesting, right? Like some of you know what it's like to come from a bad family and how that impacts your life today and your walk of faith and so on. Abram came from a pagan moon-worshipping or idol-worshipping family. And that's where they stayed. And that's where Haran died. Isn't that interesting? Start the story of Abram like that. And out of this bleak picture comes chapter 12, verse 1, which is just like a bolt out of the blue. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. From 
And watch how it gets more focused. You go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, here's what we're not sure about. Is this Abram's first call back when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans? It's interesting. The, the, now, the Lord said, that verb there could just as easily mean the Lord had said. If you have an ESV Bible, there's a text note there. If you have an NIV, it actually translates it as had said. It lines up with what we see in Acts chapter 7. So this, this could be Abram's first call in Ur of the Chaldeans. This could be a renewed call. Okay, so he was called in Ur of the Chaldeans. He makes it as far as Haran, and then he settles down. And then God says to him again, get up and go. Either way, either way, here's what's really important here. Abram started off his life with years of not obeying God disobedience or at least partial obedience he was told to go to Canaan and he made it halfway and settled down strong suggestion here that Abram had spent years in disobedience he had been unwilling to leave his father and follow God's call maybe he was really tight with this really cozy close-knit family perhaps he couldn't bear the thought of leaving his father Maybe the big journey was too much for him to do alone. We don't know the details, but we don't often consider that Abram's journey started with a significant period of not obeying God. But that's what this is telling us. Now, with that point aside, we should notice just how abrupt chapter 12, verse 1 is. This is really out of the blue, out of the chaos of the post-Babel world, out of the pagan moon worship of Haran. God calls this seemingly random man to go and do something big. Have we seen this kind of thing in the story before? It's a great Bible study question. Just where have we seen this before? Where have we seen God speaking to make something out of nothing? In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's actually interesting. The structure of chapter 12 here actually follows pretty carefully, with, with a few exceptions, the structure of Genesis 1, where God speaks and things happen. That's what we talked about this morning, about, about why we do a call to worship at the beginning. We, this is how everything happens. God speaks and things happen. And that's what's happening here. Just like, just like Genesis 1. And so what this is suggesting to us here is that the call of Abram is like a new creation. It's a new creation. And in fact, that's actually the point that the Apostle Paul draws in Romans 4.17, where he compares what God does with Abram with what God did at creation. Out of the blue, calling something from nothing. Now, this is not like the new creation with Noah. With Noah, there was also new creation. God destroyed the old world and then brought forth a new one. Here, God has not destroyed the old world, just like he promised, but within the world, he's bringing forth a new work of creation within the world that already exists. This is 
as much of a shock as Genesis 1-3. And here it is. Now, key in this work of new, new creation, really important as a part of this, is the command for Abram to go. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Do you hear an echo here? Or, or, or maybe we, hear an, we heard an echo before of Jesus saying, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, calling people to leave behind their family ties in order to follow him. And where was Abram supposed to go? To the land that I will show you. Man, that's, that's not very specific, is it? When I'm going to move somewhere new, like when we moved up to Nippon, we did a lot of research. We, we made pretty sure that we wanted to move here. And God says, go and I'll show you. So all Abram has to go on is just trusting that God's actually going to do that, actually going to show him that. Now, after this command, God gives him the promises. And again, I hope you can follow along on your, on your handout where we are. We're now under point C and then number two, the promises. Here's where things get really staggering. The promises that God gives him out of the blue come in three parts. First, there's a promise of a great nation. And I will make of you a great nation. Now, the word great here points in two directions. It points to size, like a big nation, and it points to importance, like, like a, a really great nation, like having a great name. This is an incredible promise for anybody to receive, especially someone who doesn't have any kids. I'll make you a great nation. Me? That's what he said. Number two, a worldwide blessing. This is in verses two to three. God will bless him and make his name great. That's ironic, isn't it? God will make his name great. Chapter 11, the Babel builders wanted to make a name for themselves. And here, God picks someone from that land and says, I will make your name great. You don't make a name for yourself. I'm going to make your name great. And how's that going to happen? Not because he's going to build towers or monuments or buildings, but because he is going to be blessed. He is going to be supremely blessed. I will bless you and make your name great. Now, why? Why is God going to bless him? What's the goal here? What's the goal of God blessing him? Verse 2, so that you will be a blessing. Now, this, this could also be a command. Be a blessing is Scholars debate whether God's saying you will be a blessing or be a blessing. But either way, the goal of Abram being blessed is to be a blessing to other people. So Abram is not supposed to be like a, like a reservoir that just collects blessings like a lake. He's supposed to be like a river that, where blessings flow through to other people. And who are those other people? Well, we're going to see here in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Everybody is going to get in on this blessing through Abram. The whole world. Isn't that incredible? And how is this going to work? Well, one of the main ways it's going to work, I will bless, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. 
Him who dishonors you, I will curse. So some of this is going to be Abram actually blessing people. We're going to see next week, uh, Jordan's preaching next week, by the way, and we're going to see Abram go to Egypt and, and, and be a blessing there in a kind of a roundabout, kind of a crazy way as he blesses Pharaoh. But, but as much as that, what's the focus here is that when people bless Abram, God will bless them. So God is the one doing the blessing. When people curse Abram, God will curse them. God is the one doing the blessing. And the result, again, like we've seen, is worldwide blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, including the family of Ham, including the family of Canaan, all the families. We've we got to just stop and take stock of how big this is. Up till now, the story of the Bible has been a story marred by curse. Perfect world cursed by God, then by people. We saw them come out of the ark and Noah cursing his son. Curse has been the downward spiral of the story up until this point. And this is the moment when it stops. And when God says, no, no, I'm doing something new. And it is blessing, blessing for the nations through you, Abraham. Blessing for the world. This is, this is a major turning point. We almost say the major turning point in God's unfolding plan of redemption where the downward spiral of cursing gets interrupted with blessing. Now there's a third and final element to these promises to Abram. And we're going to skip down. We're going to come back and cover the material in between. But verse 7 Abram's in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So if Abram is going to be a great nation, they've got to live somewhere. And, and you might have been wondering, how's that going to work? And here's where, how God answers that question. There's going to be a place for his offspring to live. He's going to give him and his offspring the land of Canaan. Now, there's some tension there because verse 6 says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So how's that going to work? Well, it, if you've read the book of Joshua, you know how it's going to work, at least partially. But at this point, Abram doesn't know that. Abram doesn't know how any of these promises are going to work. How is he going to have this land if it's already full of people living in it? How is he going to be a great nation if he's got nobody, no kids? How is he going to be a blessing to the world without any of these pieces in place? That's exactly the point. Those questions, those questions I just asked are exactly the point. These staggering promises against all odds shape the unfolding story of the rest of the book of Genesis. The whole rest of the story of Genesis, and we could even say the Bible, is God answering those questions. How in the world is that going to actually work? Therefore, do you see how big this is? The whole rest of history is wrapped up in these promises to Abram. This is everything here. Three weeks ago, we saw how the covenant with Noah created a stable platform for God's plan of redemption. And here we see God starting to build on that platform, building his plan of redemption. And we don't know what the tree is going to look like, but we see here the acorn. Everything that happens from this point on is here in seed form in these 4,000-year-old promises. 
Next, we want to see Abram's response. How does Abram respond to all this? How would you respond to all this? That's an interesting question to chew on. Well, first, he goes. We see going is his first response. After years of stalling and dragging his feet, verse 4 tells us, Abram went. Man, I just, like, did he have any idea what was coming? Did he have any idea what was coming as he took that first step, or maybe his camel took that first step outside of Haran? I was thinking today, man, that was one small step for a man or a camel, but a, a giant leap for mankind, truly. And, and, I'm, and I'm stealing Neil Armstrong's words there, but truly, this, was, this is so big. And yet, it's also so simple. God said, go, and Abram... <coughs> Just went. Don't, don't we often complicate obedience? We, we overcomplicate obedience so much. God said go, so we went. Really simple. He made it complicated the first time. Oh, you know, I got to honor my father. Well, God said go. So we went. Two more details in verse 4 that are important. And Lot went with him. Okay, Lot's going to play a big part in the story going forward. Then look at what comes next. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So, quick little application point. Don't say that you're too old to obey the Lord. Don't be too sad about the years that you think you've wasted. You have no idea with what, what God can do with what you have left. You're not too old. You're not done. If you've got life, there's a story still to be written. What could God do with it? Verse 5, in typical fashion, we should be used to this now, it repeats the important information by telling us that Abram took Lot and Sarai and all their people and possessions and set out to go to the land of Canaan. What's really important there, though, is that this, this verse is kind of an echo of verse 31 of chapter 11, when Terah took Abram and Sarai and Lot to go to the land of Canaan. This is not, so just think about this. This is not the first time Abram has set out on this journey. It's not his first, not his first rodeo. It's not his first time trying to do this. But this time he makes it. And verse 5 ends on a victory note. When they came to the land of Canaan, yes, they finally made it. This is, this is a celebration, right? They, they finally made it. And yet, and yet, there's something here that's, again, so important to the story going forward. This was not a typical arrival. Let me just ask you the question, where did Abram settle down? When he got to Haran, he settled there. When Abram got to Canaan, where did he settle down? The answer is he didn't. Verse 6 tells us he passed through the land. Verse 8, he moved to the hill country. It's interesting. Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar, says that, that this word move here comes from the very graphic picture of, of pulling up tent stakes. He pulled up his tent stakes. He's living in tents. Verse 8 goes on to say he pitched his tent between these two cities. Verse 9 says he journeyed on. Again, Robert Alser saying that word points to this idea of successive encampments. Some of you really like camping. I wonder how you'd like living that way. That's how Abram lived. Going from place to place. So Abram goes... And then he just keeps on going. He doesn't settle. And we're going to see here in the rest of the story, he never does. He lives as a nomad for the rest of his life in a land 
that he had been promised up till he dies. Now, that's not the only thing Abram did. There's a second part to his response. There's going and there's worshiping. Verse 7, after the Lord gave him the promise of the land, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to them. Again, he camps between these two cities, Bethel and Ai, cities that we're going to hear more of later in the story. There he built an altar to the Lord and called up on the name of the Lord. Now, now, if we just read this quickly, we might think, well, yeah, I mean, he's Abram. Of course he's going to do that. But no, no, just think. This is a big deal. Abram, from a pagan family and a pagan land, used to idol worship and moon worship, is starting something for him, very likely, brand new here. The right worship of the living God. It had been 10 generations from Noah till this point. At what point did the worship of God fizzle out and get replaced by idols? Noah built altars to the Lord, but that was hundreds of years before. What we see here is Abram starting something really new and really important as he gives his heart and his worship to the Lord. Now, there's, there's two more things here we've got to see. Abram worshiping God is not a side point to the story. It's not like, oh, he went and, oh yeah, and kind of built some altars there. No, 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 no. God being worshipped by his people is the goal of this story. Do you see that? That's what it's after. Remember we saw saw this last week, that the goal of God's plan of redemption is gathering a worshipping people around his throne that he and his worthy son might be worshipped forever. That's the goal here. So what Abram's doing here is just a little preview of what this is all about, of what the whole world is going to do. And so these altars that he builds in the promised land are like flags planted on the battlefield. The war's not over, but he's staking out this territory and he's showing what this is all about and what this is all headed for. The worship of God, God's glory. That's where the story goes. Last little point here about Abram's worship. Abram's worship meant something because he actually obeyed God and he went. Can you imagine if God had told him to go and he said, well, uh, Haran's pretty comfortable and I kind of need to take care of my family. How about I'll just build some altars and I'll worship you here? I, I can worship you here in Haran, can't I? I don't have to go to the promised land, you know, the way we so often justify. That, that would not have been acceptable worship. Abram's worship is acceptable because it was the fruit of a life of worship that proved itself through actually obeying God and doing what he said. So we see this again all throughout the rest of the Bible. God doesn't care about our religious celebrations if our hearts are way somewhere else. The, the worship that is pleasing to God is the fruit of, of an obedient life. So with that, we are coming to the end of this passage. And we've already seen, like there's a lot here, hey, just in these verses. And there's been a bunch of really important lessons that we've seen. But what I want us to do now is step back and we're going to look at three enduring truths from this passage. Three enduring truths that I hope come like arrows and lodge in our hearts as we step back and look at this passage as a whole today. The first of these three enduring truths has to do with election. Not a political election. The word election just means choice. And what we're talking about here is God's choice of Abram. 
Why did God pick Abram? Why not someone else? That question really jumped out at me a few years ago when I was reading through the Bible chronologically. And here's how the chronological reading plan went. Genesis 11, the book of Job, Genesis 12. Because some of the best evidence within the book of Job is that Job lived right around this time. He might have been a contemporary of of Abram's. At least he lived right around this time. And it was so jarring for me to read this family history and then righteous Job. And then, after reading the whole story of righteous Job being proved and coming through that trial and praying for his friends and everything, then to turn to Genesis 12 and read, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred. It just, it just slapped me across the face. If I was God, I would have picked Job instead of Abram. For one, he had a, he had a family, so he already had a head start on becoming a great nation. Second, he had a proven track record of righteousness. I mean, you can look at him. I mean, that's what God says to Satan, right? Look at my servant Job. If I, was to, if I was to pick someone to start the plan of redemption with, I would have picked this guy who'd just come through this amazing test and been proven. And hey, here we go. We're going to do with Job. He's going to be the father of a mighty nation. Instead, God picks a childless older man from a pagan family from Babylon and decides to do his work with him. Why? There is nothing about Abram that made him a better choice than anybody else until God chose him. Okay, that's what we need to understand. That, that question, why did God pick him? That's the whole point. There is nothing about Abram that made him a better candidate except that God chose him. That's what God does. God doesn't choose people who are up for the task. God chooses people and then makes them up for the task. That's how he works. And he does this because it brings him glory. It makes it clear that we have nothing to brag about. It makes it clear when God does this that it's God and not any human who's actually the main character of the story. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 30. And here when it talks about calling, it's talking about God effectually calling us to salvation. For consider your calling, brothers... Hear these words from the Lord this morning. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here's the goal, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus. If you're saved this morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, it's because of him. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is what God does. He chooses the most unlikely people to save and then to use because he gets the glory. I remember going to a prayer meeting years ago where every week the ladies had this book that was something like praying for the hundred most influential people in the world. And it was like Hollywood actors and politicians and like, and the idea was like, man, if those like really important people could get saved, think of what God could do with them. That's not how God tends to work. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. That's not, look at Abram. God chooses the 
lowly, weak, powerless, unlikely people, and then does stuff with them. So I, I know some of your stories in this room. You each know your story. Each of us in some way could probably say, man, I'm, I'm the most unlikely person. That's what God does. By being unlikely, you actually are then more likely for God to, to save you and to do something with you because he gets the glory for it. So be encouraged today. And, it, and if you think you are likely, if you think, well, of course he'd save me because, you know, well, just drop that. Give up on boasting on yourself. Look to God. He loves to work with the weak. Boast in him. God loves to save the weak. This is not just about God using us. This is about how we got saved. God chose us and called us. Had nothing to do with us. Second big lesson here, enduring truth, has to do with faith. What was it that led Abram to respond to God's call and to get up and to go and live the kind of life that he lived all those years. And the answer is that he had faith in God's promises. So this is what we read in our call to worship passage this morning. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out. Hebrews eleven eight. So think of how the passage itself is laid out in Genesis 12. You've got the command in verse 1, and you've got Abram's response in verse 4. What's in between? It's the promises. Abram obeyed because he believed what God said. And that faith naturally produced a life of obedient worship. If you're struggling to obey the Lord in any area of your life, it's probably because you're struggling to believe the Lord in some area. There's a, there's a direct, unbreakable connection between faith and obedience. We got a little book in our library called Battling Unbelief that, that maps out this dynamic so beautifully and so helpfully. It talks about some key sins that we struggle with, like anxiety and pride and lust, and shows how at the root of those sins is a struggle to believe what God has said. And so the struggle to obey, the struggle to be holy and righteous is ultimately about trusting in God's promises. So try this for yourself. Pick a New Testament letter. So this is maybe really specific here. Pick a letter in the New Testament, read through it slowly, and make a note of every time that you see an instruction or a command and then make a note of every time you see a promise and you'll see how they're connected. God doesn't just tell us to do stuff nor does God just give us promises that just hang in the middle of the air. God promises and he commands and they fit together. Just like for Abraham. He believed and he obeyed. The same thing happens to us. Number three, Third enduring truth, and the word here is just Christ. Whether we know it or not, this passage is about Jesus. The great nation promised to Abraham, became his name, would be the nation that would bring forth the Messiah. The worldwide blessing to Abraham, when did this get, how does this get realized? It gets realized through Jesus, who died to save people from every nation. That's what Galatians 3.8 says. Okay, Galatians 3, such a great chapter. Why don't you read it this afternoon? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Okay, this, is, this is our salvation. Us Gentiles, non-Jews, saved by faith in Jesus. Knowing that would happen, the scripture, which is God, because God is, and the scripture, they both, it's both his voice, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Okay? So in the Bible, we see the gospel being preached to Abraham. And where? where where's the gospel being preached to Abraham? Well, what's Galatians 3.8 say? 
saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So when God says to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed, that's the gospel. Well, how is that the gospel? Because how does that happen? How does the blessing to the nations happen? Through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, dying for people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, and making them a kingdom of priests to our God. Genesis 12.3 is the gospel. God is preaching the gospel to Abraham there. And it gets even more specific. Genesis 12.7 says, To your offspring I will give this land. Who is that offspring? In the short term, is the nation of Israel. God gave them the land through Joshua. But ultimately, this is pointing to Jesus. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Some people today argue about who the land of Israel belongs to. You know, according to the book of Galatians, it belongs to Jesus, because he's the offspring of Abraham. It's his, along with the rest of the world. Because all the promises of God are yes in him. Everything, this whole plan of redemption comes to a point in Jesus. And that's where you and I come in. Because now, the way that someone becomes an offspring of Abraham and gets the blessings of Abraham is not by being born into that family like we heard again and again and again in Matthew. It's by having faith in Jesus. So Galatians 3.29, listen to this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that's the note that we're going to end on this morning because the story of Abraham matters because this is the story of Jesus. And because this is the story of Jesus, this story, if you know Christ, this is your story. This is your story. If you are in Christ, then Abraham is your father. That stupid song we sang at kids about Father Abraham had many sons and I'm one of them and so are you. Ridiculous song, but theologically true, except for the part about shaking your hands. I don't know where that comes in. But, but theologically, spot on. You and I, if we know Christ, this is for us. This is our story. Abraham's journeys, listen to this, Abraham's journeys in Canaan are a part of your testimony because this is the story of redemption that results and brings about you being saved by Jesus. This, these are your people. This history is the history that you've been grafted into through Christ. And that is just so transformative. That's why we need to read the Bible and get into it when we we step out of our own little stories and we step into this big story and we see how it all fits together and it all makes sense. If If you're not in Christ this morning, you could be. Just like Abraham, respond by faith to the promises of God that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you have no idea what that means, I'm going to be down here at the front praying with people. I'd love, I'd love to pray with you and help you see how this all fits together and what the promise of the gospel means for you. But hear this this morning, those of you who know the Lord, this is your story. And when you know that, it's impossible to live Monday to Saturday in any other way than the way that Abraham lived. That's why we're going to end our service this morning. There was only one song that we could sing at the end of our service this morning. And so we're going to sing by faith. We're going to stand together and sing, we, we, this group of people here gathered today, we will stand as children of the promise, of this promise. 
We're the children of this promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. Like Abraham, we will walk by faith and not by sight. Oh Lord, would you help us to see our place as heirs of this promise? Would you help us to take our place among the people of God? Would you help us to walk by faith and not by sight, just like Abraham did? Would you work this same faith in us for your glory today as we, in many ways, are strangers and aliens in a land that we don't feel very at home in? May we be content to look for the city that has foundations that you've built and promised to your children. May we be content to live like Abram did, never at home, because you're our home, O oh Lord. And may we be strong in faith as we bring you glory through a life of worshiping obedience as we walk by faith and not by sight. O oh Lord, we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Team, why don't you come on up and let's, let's sing.